Welcome to the What You Should Have Been Taught podcast, where we talk about everything you should have been taught in school but weren't. In particular, we'll focus on finances, fitness, and creating a phenomenal life on your terms. I'm your host, Kate Hildreth, a former USA rugby player, entrepreneur, and real estate investor. I'm also LGBTQ, so if you're looking for a queer mentor you can trust, you finally found one. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. Let's dive in. I have an incredible guest for you today. It's Lori Lindsay, who is a former pro soccer player, longtime member of the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team, and current soccer analyst and commentator. Among her many accomplishments, Lori competed with the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team that won silver at the 2011 World Cup in Germany and supported the U.S.'s gold medal win at the 2012 Olympics. With a professional career that spanned an impressive 13 years, she competed professionally across the United States and Australia and is one of only four players to play in all three of the U.S. professional women's soccer leagues. After retiring from soccer, she transitioned into being a nationally syndicated commentator and analyst for CBS Sports and ESPN. In today's interview, we'll explore her experience as an elite athlete and professional soccer player. Of course, we'll also explore her commitment to advocacy and inclusion in sports, as well as mindsets that have helped her along the way. So let's dive in. Lori, welcome. Thank you. That was uh, so lovely and, and formal. I'm so so used to like informal uh, discussions with you and just shooting the shit. I don't know if I'm supposed to cuss on here or not, but it's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. You can me. say whatever you want and awesome. welcome. <laughs> well, obviously, I know you really well, but for those that are getting to meet you now, where'd you grow up and what was your childhood like? And most importantly, how did soccer come to play such an important role in your life? Yeah. Well, so I'm from Indiana. Um, grew up in Indianapolis and, you know, I have an older brother, older sister. And my parents divorced when I was quite young, just two. And um, then my dad remarried and I lived with my dad and stepmom. And basically it was kind of like one of those typical kind of childhood things. Like my brother's a couple of years older than me, but we're very close. And um, so I wanted to do whatever he was doing. And so that happened to be playing sports. Um, and mainly soccer was just catching um, some traction in Indiana at that time in the, in the early eighties. So my dad was like, this is what we're doing, playing some, playing some soccer. And so I was just on, on my brother's teams and just following him around. And eventually my dad became our coach and I was playing a couple of years young couple years up essentially with an all boys team and again with my brother and then just kind of that that path just kept kept going and I found out that I was pretty good at the the sport and I really enjoyed it so there's a lot more like movement in there but that's essentially but that's um, the hook sport. yeah that's how you get hooked yeah early on that was the main sport and there were some other sports basketball cross country and that kind of stuff but that was the one if you had to choose a secondary sport after soccer, what would it have been? Oh, goodness. Probably basketball. I loved it. <laughs> but that was all. It always, my skill set was secondary because it always did come second. So I got to stick with the one that um, I enjoyed and that was ultimately much better at. I didn't, maybe I knew that you were a cross country runner. I was too. And I always thought it was such a good prep for other sports and probably cross country coaches would hate to hear that because it should be the primary sport. Totally. So, but, but in my experience, it was really great prep for other sports. And for elite competition, because then you're so used to fitness testing that every race is a fitness test. And when yeah. you're doing national level and international level fitness, you're like, oh, normal Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> totally. I actually really enjoyed the cross country and track and for those exact same reasons. And then it was just a ability to, yeah, just help aid in soccer. And that was always kind of like the ultimate goal, especially as I got a little bit older. What is going to ultimately help me get better in this particular sport. So, but yeah, I enjoyed it. And then there's a period where I was like, nah, I can give or take some, I can, I can be done with some running. <laughs> exactly. Did you consciously put it through the filter? What will make me better at soccer? Was that a question that was front of mind or was it an unconscious? Um, yeah. Great question. I wouldn't say, I would say starting around eighth grade, because that was a real pivotal point for me about that time. Prior to that, my, my brother, Chris, he was the one that was like out in our backyard. My dad had built a soccer goals. 
out there practicing on his own. And I was just kind of like this kid that I haven't mentioned. I was a big time skateboarder too. That's actually what I want to do. I was like a subscription, had a subscription to like Thrasher magazine, Trans World mag, uh, skateboarding magazine. I was really big into skateboarding at a quarter pipe. But again, it was all like, hey, make sure you don't get injured because you have soccer. But at that point in time, you know, I was driven for soccer, but it was just something I also did until eighth grade when I had taken about six months off from soccer, got pretty burnt out, came back to it. And then that's when everything started to go through that filter of like, okay, how is this going to help? Where where are the areas not only like skill wise, but athletically, can I improve as well? was really curious about that because sports psychologists and even social psychologists have found that a really good filtering question that you can put everything through can help guide behavior substantially to high performance. So I was like, are you unconsciously doing this or was this a conscious? Because it's a very good performance tool. To yeah. yeah, very much consciously, I would say at that point in time, because it was really a turning point. Little side note, I thought I was going to become a famous actress and <laughs> I wanted to become a famous actress and move to Hollywood. So I, I quit soccer, as I was saying, and it took six months to to pursue this, my mom signed me up for a Saturday morning acting class and goodness gracious, it was, I was terrible. And so it was like six months was great break, but it was also like a period of time where it was like, okay, yeah, I really actually do miss soccer. And I, I miss that performance side mm-hmm. of things. So when I returned, everything started to become like, because of me, instead of like my dad telling me to like, go out in the backyard and train, right. Go out and do extra. And so that's how it was like very conscious decision to be like, okay, what are the things that I can do to get better? I started weightlifting. And then obviously, so we're talking like doing like cross country or extra, extra sprints and, and stuff like that. And zooming out, it was funny when you said you thought you wanted to be an actress because you're right. This force is a performance. And also you're a commentator and analyst, which is a performance. <laughs> so maybe you just had sort of the, the, the platform wrong, but you had the concept, right? You could feel the concept. Oh, totally. I, I am like, it feels so grateful because I'm like, oh, it's playing out perfectly. Yes. <laughs> Here's this of like using my soccer, like PhD that I have essentially with mm-hmm. marrying this like aspect of like, okay, I love being like live on air. And I love that um, role that you get in that. And there's like such a, it's still like a very team oriented relationship building aspect aspect as well. So it's just always a, a lesson of getting out of the way, I should say though, and stop believing in, I think a lot of the BS. And that, that deep knowing, you had that deep knowing early. Yeah. So sometimes you don't even need to trust it so much as explore it over time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So when you grew up, you had a bit of an unusual experience for the time period, which was you had two moms. So what, what was it like to grow up like that? Yeah, well, I think that was certainly a, a huge aspect in like of, of my life, just in general. Mm-hmm. You know, in Indiana in the early 80s, not many people, especially as like my mom and my parents getting divorced and then my mom ultimately saying, I'm leaving this relationship. I'm a lesbian woman to live her truth that early on and to to feel like potentially it would be putting a lot on the line right because my dad ultimately did get custody of us and so my mom just had visitation rights but i think that's very scary and so for me it was so profound to have this person that i love deeply and was such a in a lot of ways a stable figure in my life to say hey this is who i am this is i'm going to live my truth regardless of how difficult this might seem and you know i think that is something that i've carried carried on throughout my life and and still drives me i think in a lot of the things that i do and and why i want to speak out about other things because i had that i had that centerpiece right there in front of me throughout such important pivotal times in my life oh it's such a gift i hadn't thought about it from that perspective but having that that action, that role model, because we watch what our 
adult figures do. We listen yeah, a little I, bit and we watch a lot. <laughs> yeah. And let me be clear. Like, I don't know if I actually like knew that at the young age. Mm-hmm. Right. I knew that I like, I miss my mom. I wanted to see her more, but I was also like, okay, like she, she's happy and we do see her and she came to my soccer games and it was an important role. Right. It wasn't until later yeah. years, but still it's, that is when you take a step back, you're like, okay, this is, this is what about what living your truth is all about. And so I feel very grateful for that. Absolutely. That's incredible. And stepping forward a little bit in time, you're an extremely high performing athlete at the University of Virginia, which uh, is a great place. I have a lot of teammates who went there. What were some of the milestones that you achieved during that time? And how did that period impact your trajectory after college? Yeah, well, you know, I I primarily when I set foot on that campus, taking my recruiting visit for soccer, I was like, this is the place. I mean, it is a beautiful, beautiful campus, extraordinary university. And also at the time, my, my youth national team coach was the head coach there, April Heinrichs. And she ended up going, leaving partway through my college career to take over the, be the head coach of the U.S. Women's National Team. But I think just the resources on all fronts, not only athletically, but academically as well. I feel very fortunate of entering UVA at a time for women's soccer programs specifically, because it was a trajectory that I think we, the, the program had been fairly good throughout. And then it was my recruiting class that really kind of took it to another level in a lot of, large part to April Heinrichs recruiting us. Um, a lot of us have played on the national team with her, but just the resources that were being put into the program and the athletic department in general at that point in time too, took it to a whole nother level. So I think it, it set the stage for me to have like a platform to be seen by national team coaches. Um, that's kind of how it works in soccer. You, you go to a college and then now we have a women's pro league. However, at the time we didn't. So the next step was the national team. And so it gave me great resources, great platform to be able to be seen or recruited by the national team coach at that time to be able to take that next step. So, and then ultimately by the time I was about to graduate or finish my eligibility, we did have a pro, another pro league at the time. And so it was a stepping stone to be able to be seen and, and ultimately drafted um, to the pro league then. Who are a couple of the other players that got recruited in your same class that were major uh, on the team? Yeah, Lori Gorecki at the time. She's playing down in Texas. I mean, obviously, all these players are retired and we're much older now, but yeah. Darcy Borsky, I'm mm-hmm. in Philadelphia now. She was born and bred. First time I ever went to Philly. She's a North Philly gal, but excellent striker at the time. And then, and then that just paved the way. Becky Sauerbrunn, who was a few, four years younger than me, but just hit her 200 cap, which is amazing with our U.S. Women's mm-hmm. National Team last night. So she's represented 200 times, which is huge. Yeah, I've been a longtime captain for the national team. So, yeah, it has just like some wonderful players have come out of that program. Amanda Cromwell, she was a number of years earlier than me, but now she's the head coach of the Orlando Pride, which is in our National Women's Soccer League which is our pro league, just took over that position with a longtime UCLA head coach. So a lot of different avenues, but yeah, we had a, a really good recruiting class that year. And I think it's just set the stage. That's awesome. And when did you first start competing with the U.S. Women's National Soccer Team? And, and in particular, I'm curious what an early memory was from that time, whether that was like a first camp or a first friendship or a first thing that stuck out to you. Yeah. Well, I, you know, we have a series of youth national teams. So I, around eighth grade is when I really started competing eighth, ninth grade with our youth national teams. And you're talking like Abby Wambach and I grew up together. A lot of people know that name. And then a, a series of other players that have gone on to, to represent our full national team. But I played with all the youth national teams. And then it wasn't until, let's see, 2003 is when our 
league folded. It's 2004. I went in. It was right before, six months before the the 2004 Olympics in Greece. And April Heinrichs, who had been my coach um, for a few years at UVA, was the head coach. And because our pro league had folded the year prior, we went into what's a residency. And that was out in L.A., and we lived out there for six months and just competed. There's about 30 players competing for 18 spots. I was one of them. And that was the first kind of sniff that I got on the full national team. And I guess an early memory would be, I'm trying to think if there's like, this isn't like a great one. So it's kind of funny for me to, to say this on. Well, I mean, I played with Mia Ham. I played with Abby on the Washington Freedom the year before. So I had some some really good friends. I had known Julie Foudy from when I played San Diego and then got drafted to Washington Freedom. There's a lot of names I'm throwing out here, but these are some big time names that people would recognize. But in, in training camp, they were always so competitive. And we have this, our general manager of the U.S. Women's National Team right now, her name's Kate Markgraf, used to be Kate Sabrero. And we were doing this fun shooting drill. And she was like this starting center, one of the starting center backs. And I just received this ball outside the box, lined it up. And here comes Kate trying to defend it. And it just nails her in the head. And I just see Kate just like, <laughs> oh, like wiggle. No one can see me, but just like wiggle her body and just like fall to the ground. And it's it's serious, right? Because she ended up being concussed from it because the way that the ball struck her, struck her head. So I'm not making light of that at all. And she's fine now. However, here I am as this rookie, like, so into the shooting drill and I like take yeah. down one of our starting center backs who has like over a hundred caps for the national team. And we laugh at Kate and I are good friends and she used to be in the commentating world and really got me to start doing analyst work. So we laugh about it today, but at the time it was like everyone just staring at me being like, who the hell is this young player coming in here and like taking, taking down. I remember being like getting a call from her husband too, who he was living in LA with all of us. Cause we're all out there being like, what happened? Anyway, Sobs or, or Kate was out for, for a number of days, recovered fully and in the playing Olympics and was all fine. But like, I feel like that is like, that's memorable. <laughs> that's memorable. <laughs> Where I'm like, uh, I'll see myself out. I will. I'll see you in a few days. I'll take the same amount of time off that Kate is. <laughs> but in, in retrospect, you, you know, as you, as you grow as a, a player on the, the highest levels, you realize it is extremely competitive in those environments and it is at a hundred percent and there is a risk in training. And that's oh, yeah. why you have to have a squad of 30 to come to 18 because yeah. you need to be able to select on performance, but also health. Yeah. And she was such a good sport about it. And I, I felt terrible. And also it was always okay. And like I said, still good friends today. And now she's the general manager of our women's national team. So everyone's in good hands and here we are. But yeah, that wasn't my finest day. And I was like, yikes. Okay. It's also really fun to get to know your teammates on both, especially the highest levels, because it gets so competitive to know I'm on both sides of the white line, right? You cross the white line and you're in play and it's crazy and intense. You cross back and you're like, oh, yeah, person's a little bit different than I thought. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but so many good moments. I, I don't know if I'd have to really give that some thought and like, yeah, but like, I, I think as you would agree that, you know, the team, the team aspect is what like drove a lot of us or just being able to compete with your friends. And again, what it looks like off the, outside the white lines and then what it does on the, on the inside, right. That really drives the culture and love being a part of that. Was there either a coach or player at the time who helped you feel comfortable as you were getting, you know, your sea legs under you at the national level? You know, it's it's funny. Um, I, I would say Mia Hamm because mm-hmm. she she's wonderful and she's um, quiet. We don't see her in the spotlight a ton. You know, she's always kind of like dodging that, especially when she was at the height of her career. But so in I after I finished my eligibility before I re, before I graduated from UVA, I got drafted to San Diego. So I went and played for San Diego for a season, and then 
we had like really good players, but we were actually really terrible, terrible that season. We just underperformed, had some coaching changes. Anyway, revamping the entire team, I got traded in the off season to Washington. So uh, much closer, obviously, to UVA. Go back there, reunited with Abby Wambach, a longtime friend of mine, and then Mia Hamm was on that team as well. And here I am, this is like 22-year-old, and I get on, I'm on this new team, and, and there's a lot of people I knew, but all of a sudden I'm like roommates with Mia Hamm all the time. Like, I'm like, <laughs> why, how is this happening? But it was great. Like, we, we hit it off and we laughed and um, she's sarcastic and we had the same, the same sense of humor. So it was really fun to be able to develop that, that relationship. And, you know, that was an interesting year for me because I wouldn't say that I performed at my best. Um, you know, I think I was, it was a time where I, I wasn't playing very free and still like, you know, in, in my head about my performances too much instead of letting things go. But she was a, she was a great help in that, in that aspect, especially with the amount of years that she had played. And so then when I go into the national team the next year, it was, it was great to have her as a resource because she was you know such a mainstay, such a focal point in the, the face of that team. And just to hear her give her insights on like my performances, but like how I was playing much freer. It, it was it was lovely and kind of eye-opening to hear a, a teammate to be able to reflect that and back to me on the differences that she saw from that first year, year before to, to that time then. So who made yeah. those rooming decisions? I'm curious. A coach, yeah, a manager. You know, I've been thinking about that. I want to know to this day too. Uh, I mean, it certainly worked out for me. I mean, I, I think it also worked out for her because... Well, I was asking in part because it's rarely just spontaneous or uh, coincidental. Yeah. You do younger players do learn an exceptional amount from a really good, stable leader who has a mature presence. And the leader learns a lot from how to elevate the play of others, stabilize the you know emotional state of a team and individuals. And so I'm I'm pretty sure that was a thoughtful yeah. decision by whoever yeah, did yeah. it. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. It's something I look back on, you know, it's, it's so subtle, but it is something that I think about quite often because it was such a integral part in just my career and, and, and where I wanted to go. And I was able to be surrounded by people that had been doing that for their lives. Right. That's awesome. And you competed in the 2011 world cup in Germany. So I was also curious if you had a, a strong memory or a fond memory from that. And the second thing I wanted to know about that experience that you can lead into is how you perceive that the men's and the women's teams were treated at that event. How is it going at that point in time? Yeah. Well, I always tell the story because I think the 2011 world cup changed the trajectory of, of women's soccer. Um, In a lot of ways, I think women's sport because of how impactful that tournament was. And so I always tell the story you know, up until that point in time, because of like Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy, Brian Escurry, the faces prior, Brandy Chastain, these players were so integral in the success that we're having today and why there's an equal pay fight, why there is this, the U.S. Women's National Team kind of leads the way in terms of fights with like federations to just continue to improve, right? And and, and push for, for better resources and better pay throughout. And it's because of those people, those players prior, but because of that, there was also some ebbs and flows. Like, you know, we had the, the 99 women's world cup in the U S that was, you know, huge memory for a lot of people that have been involved, involved in sport growing up at that time, but around every world cup and Olympics, there was a, a heightened awareness and then there'd be a drop off in the three years prior and then a heightened awareness. So just too much up and down and a lack of really attention and resources placed on, on women's sport. And so then because of that, in 2011, we, we always had these send-off matches and we ended up playing Mexico in the send-off match and in New York at Red Bull Arena. And there was really only about 5,000 fans at that game, which was like 
to be headed to a World Cup in the excitement that are typically around our World Cups was a little bit like, what is happening? Does anyone know that we're going over to, to Germany? So we get over to Germany and we're, we're in a tough group and we end up losing. So we, we make it out of, we, we end up losing to Sweden in, the, in our third group place game. And so we play Brazil. And this is a game that like, if you know anything about women's soccer, really, or you follow, this is like a game that's heard around the world and like people reference it. But it was massive because at that point in time here in the United States, I think basketball had just finished. Baseball was on strike. So we're playing this quarterfinal game against Brazil. And we end up getting a red card early on in the first half to Rachel Buehler, one of our defenders. So we go down to 10 players. It ends up, we go into double overtime. It's like the goal heard around the world where Megan Rapino just floats this ball up, whips it. It's 120th minute um, of the game. We're about to be the first U.S. women's national team out in the earliest of like any tournaments in the quarterfinal. And at last minute, Megan whoops this ball up. Abby Wambach scores. We go into penalty kicks. And we end up winning against Brazil in penalty kicks. And then we make it to the final and then ultimately end up losing to Japan in the final, which was a disaster. But and also great for Japan because I have so much respect for that team. However, Germany won, put on this like amazing tournament. It was unbelievable. 60,000 plus at the final. Their team was number one at the time. Uh, we, I think we were number two. And so they were out earlier in the tournament than anyone expected as well. And then just the everyone just rallied around us in Japan. So it was amazing that there was just so much excitement. Anyway, I tell all of that because going from 5,000 fans to prior to going to Germany and then coming to kind of like the goal that was heard around the world from Abby Wambach, it was everywhere. I mean, people were watching this, this game and the rest of our tournament. I can't tell you how many people reference that whenever I, somebody brings up the women's national team. And so from that point, I would say the trajectory for our women's national team and women's football has just been on a, a massive upward side. Like we haven't played in fewer than, and, and there might be a few caveat, caveats here, but really in front of less than fewer than 15,000 fans since then. And obviously we've seen how much the game, the, our women's team has grown in you know, 2019, 2015, 2019, we won the world cup, massive stars and Megan Rapinoe, Alex Morgan. So it's just snowballed and the platform that these players have to be able to use for good and to drive change for other federations. I mean, even just in, this is a very long-winded, sorry, but even in just this tournament that I was talking to you off air, She Believes Cup that's happening right now, you're hearing Icelandic players talking about driving and pushing their federation for better resources, better pay. And that's all driven because some of those players play in our pro league here in the NWSL and they see that firsthand. They see the platform they can have and what that's doing here in the U.S., but it just filters out. And so you're just seeing the, the game grow globally. So that's that of the change. The one, the one thing that I will say is that is hilarious about that tournament is in that overtime, I was supposed to go into that game, me and Becky Sauer run actually in the first half. And then we get the red card. So the whole game plan changes. Becky and I end up warming up for the entire game. And myself, Becky, and then our good friend who's a backup goalkeeper, Jill Lloyden, end up warming up for so much as well because she was supposed to go in. So we're... We're warming up. And at this point in time, my emotions are all over the place. I'm exhausted. And I don't think we're going to win this game at one point in time. Then I think we're going to win. All of a sudden on the sideboards, because the sideboards flip around our, our field, um, in like the 118th minute, it says, all of a sudden, believe shows up. It's just like a, a branding. And I'm like, 
never mind, we're winning this game. And so and Becky and Jill are like, okay. And then like the whole sequence of like Megan getting the ball and whipping it in and then us all going bonkers and, and then ultimately winning is something that like the three of us, Becky, Jill and I talk about often when we're together about that moment of like, we're not gonna win, we're not gonna win. And then the belief shows up and like, we're winning. And then, yeah, anyway, sorry for such a long answer, but it was such a pivotal tournament that have to give you a full time. No, that, it sounds like it was an incredibly important point, a pivotal point in the trajectory of not only the U.S. women's national soccer team, but women's sports at large. And mm-hmm. as you're describing uh, the performance, and particularly that epic moment, I was thinking about how it's sort of ironic that in women's sports, you have to prove yourself and then <laughs> you get elevated. But it was a really widely syndicated, widely watched opportunity to prove the quality of women's sports and it yeah. <laughs> delivered. And, and ever since then, we've been on the rise. So I pivotal moment. Think- Great point, because here we are a decade later, literally over a decade later, and we're still proving, right? We're in the sequel yeah. pay fight, and it's just like, that could be a, could have been going much smoother than it has been. And so, yeah, there's just, it, it's, it's, been a, it's been a journey, and I think it's, there's been some wonderful people at the helm, too, that are like really continuing to drive, and everyone's been a part of it, so... And I love hearing uh, some of the history and the legacy because so many people contribute to where we are today. And there's such incredible collaboration that pushes things forward. So it's yeah. never one person. It's never one moment. It's never even one you know case, like in the yeah. equal pay situation. It's it's all these people contributing. Um, yeah, the collaboration, so is, the collaboration is such a good word. And I, I believe in that wholeheartedly. What were some of your biggest lessons learned during your time at the U.S. national side? I think the biggest one, and this is something I was just about to say too with all of this is like how it, it's not about being impactful in terms of like getting notoriety, but how can you do things to leave. Like when I look at the U S women's national team, the whole motto is leaving the team better than it was when you started. Right. And that has been the driving force. And I, and I think about that in a lot of things about my life, even with commentating or, or, as we we're mentioning collaboration, right? Like how can you be such a good a teammate with within a skill set that or and in, in being true to to oneself, but being a part of that to to help change and in fact change for the positive. But it doesn't mean that it's like made up, right? You're not acting and or anything. It's just like what who are you and how can you affect that positive change and leave it better going forward? And I think that is something I think about in all realms of my life and how I'm showing up. I love that because similar to when we started talking, it's a really powerful question that acts as a filter, right? How do you believe it better than found it? So power of a compelling question, right? (laughs) Yeah. And that involves a lot, right? Because I mean, you and I talk about relationships a lot, communication, and I think that involves, it evolves always, right? Depending Mm -hmm. on how we're evolving and who you're surrounded with and and what you're bringing to the table. And and I think that is, that that can be very powerful and and it's, it's a constant because it is changing. We're changing, the environment's changing. So yeah. What was a hard challenge or some of the challenges when you were on the U.S. national team? The fight. I think ultimately is the, the proving, right? Or this, the, and it, it wasn't necessarily that you're just like trying to convince of like our worth, but it is, that is essentially kind of what you're doing because, you know, we all knew and knew our worth and how good we are. And we were doing this, doing the same job as what the men are doing. And it, it just was like not getting through. So I think that that was an interest. I don't, unless you're sometimes, and this can be in context with, any sort of job you're in, right? Regardless. I mean, this can be in place of with everything. But I think um, one thing that's interesting is just thinking back about the my career and 
how much everyone was doing to just make little incremental improvements and just as believe in women's sports. We've been saying this all along, right? And yeah, it could have been much easier. And it and it's you know, and, and combating a lot of the just be happy with what you have. It's like, well, that's literally that's not at all how I uh, approach life. And so, it's a great tool. I'm impression, very appreciative. Though. I'm very appreciative, but it's not just like that. It's that was more of like a complacency. Like, mm-hmm. no, here we are doing great things for you. You should be happy that we're here. But like, yeah, no, that's not how I'm approaching approaching life in that way. So it's interesting because there's so much that I'm grateful for within that. You know, with the with the, that journey. And it's, um, I played in all three pro leagues. So I have a really, I think, expansive understanding of where the game has been and where it is now. That's unique to a lot of people because, you know, the players that are coming up now looks a lot different than it did 20 years ago. So I feel grateful for that understanding and that journey. And I'm also very proud of, of where the game is and where it can go. And there's still a long way, right? So completely understand. And your mention of playing in multiple pro leagues is a perfect leading because I was curious, what caused you to head to Australia to play over there? And what was different about their style of play compared to over here in the States? Yeah, well, so at that time prior, so just to give a little bit of context, Australia is not a full professional league, but they do. We have not a, we have always a decent amount of player, Australian players that come over and play in our league, Mm -hmm. um, our pro league here in the U.S. So there was always a good relationship between both countries in, in that regard. And they're complete opposite. So ours is um, typically kind of like spring through fall and then theirs is in the winter. So it's like a perfect way to chase the summers because it's summer over there, even though it's winter here. And so up in that, up until that point in time, last two years of my career, I wasn't able to go over because I was playing with the national team. And in our off season of our pro league, we had camps and preparation for um, stuff with our national team. So when I was finished playing with the national team, I still played for another few years in our pro league. And it was a, actually a, a great opportunity for me to be able to continue to play. So I ended up going to, we had a good relationship. I knew some people that knew some of the, a woman by the name of Heather Reed, who was higher up in Cambria United. So and it was great because it was the most professional team over there in, in terms of not being professional. And <laughs> all my Australian friends, side note, were all like, oh, sorry about you, mate, going to Canberra. Because they're known for Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, right? All these beautiful beaches and in Canberra, it's, it's their capital and their landlocked essentially. And uh, I couldn't have asked for a better place. So it was a tight knit community, very outdoorsy, great cafes. And so yeah, headed over there. Brilliant experience. Loved it. And still have some lifelong friends. So wouldn't change that experience. And it was chasing the summers and it was a great place Absolutely. to play. Yeah. It's, it's similar to my life experience too, where I also went over and played New Zealand and Australia and, and much of it was <laughs> chasing the sport around the world, uh, yeah. getting experiences of their style of play. And obviously just an incredible life experience to live in another country and experience their culture, both on the field, but off the field. Yeah. And we still have quite a few players. If they're like really kind of on the verge of playing with the national team, we'll go over and play because it's a perfect, it's like a, about a three month season, four month season and go on loan over there and get quality minutes. So, and it's, it's a beautiful country and an awesome, awesome place. So absolutely. So across your teams growing up, across the national side, across the pro leagues, uh, across Australia, who's a teammate that you've always held in high respect and why? So you have a lot of opportunities to choose from there. Oh yeah. Well, listen, I mean, it's an easy one. I mean, there's two, I guess, like Becky Sauerbrunn, but, and also not, but, but, and also Megan Rapinoe. I mean, Megan Rapinoe and I've been great friends for a long time. I think with Becky, we were, we both lived in DC for a long time. She's now in Portland playing for that pro league, her and her longtime partner Zola. 
but we were really good friends and also training partners. So I got to see kind of that like behind the scenes. But I think with Becky, you know, just such a, a, a thoughtful leader who is always putting the team first and, you know, and, and I don't want to say like, oh, like not taking care of herself. No, no doubt. Like doing what she needs to do to make herself ready. Right. Like, you know, not having a leader that's just like doing whatever for everybody else. But I think, you know, just so thoughtful about the picture, the big picture. Um, she also, obviously, I said, played at UVA. So there's a lot of that that I hold near and dear to. But an unbelievable player in general, but just like a, a thoughtful, very kind leader who um, really takes the whole picture in context. And then also Megan Rapino. I mean, we go way back, same humor, lover to death. And, you know, I think anybody that's listening to this podcast would know who Megan is as well. And, and just the, the ease at which she approaches life, I think, and the joyfulness. I, the best way that I can explain it with Megan is she takes what she does very seriously, but doesn't take herself that seriously within it. And I think that is a, probably the best the biggest gift that she's giving all of us too, because I think there's an ease that she approaches life and comes from really like, you would understand this language, but a real state of love. And because she's tackling some really big issues and now spoken in issues, but I think it's um, presenting them in a way that can be heard and, and very simple instead of complex. And I think that's a gift to all of us and um, has used her platform in a way that I think is, is very powerful and, and important. I, I love that. And I think that it is big responsibility to have that level of um, awareness around you and, and celebrity status and to use it in ways that are important outside of sport is a big decision and it takes mm -hmm. a lot of courage. Yeah, it certainly is. And it's not for everybody, right? So mm -hmm. you might have answered this in the past one, but maybe there's someone else too. But mm -hmm. I was also curious, given that it's important to have a good time while you're playing at such elite status and training so hard, who's a teammate that always could get you to laugh? Oh, well, I mean, Megan and I were like bus mates and stuff too. So we just sit there and joke, you know, who, who was always such a sly, like comedian is uh, a player by the name of Amy Rodriguez. And she actually just retired right prior to this season. So this past month, but played on the Nash team with us for a really long time, had an um, extensive playing career. We played in Philadelphia together in our old pro league and just would ha be like the one that you want to sit next to because I had all the sly comments and why this is if this comes up because Megan if you know Megan obviously she dyes her hair in a lot of different colors but before the 2011 World Cup she dyed it platinum blonde and it was genius because she was kind of becoming a breakout star then and but her hair is brown and so she'd get these gnarly roots right and it'd be Amy Rodriguez and Lauren Chaney at the time, but now Lauren Holiday that would sit behind us on the bus. And as I mentioned, Amy Rodriguez always had these sly little things to say. And she's like, you know, Meg, she just one day comes out and she's like, I'm just always rooting for your success. And like, <laughs> just a play on Megan's hair because at that point in time, we'd have been joking about Megan's hair. But it was so funny. It's something that all of us just reference to this day. And, and so, yeah, I put Amy, Amy in there because I don't think like in general, unless you've played with her, kind of know her personality, you wouldn't get that sense in interviews, but goodness, she was funny. That is funny. That's a callback humor that it lives on for years yeah, and not decades. Totally. <laughs> so, so many good, so much good stuff. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned this a little bit, but how are we doing in general with the quality between the women's national soccer team and the men's and, and what kind of progress is needed? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, there's, we're at a really pivotal time, I think in U.S. soccer. I also sit on the U.S. soccer board. So that's a, sometimes a tough responsibility because, you know, you really have to separate yourself, but I believe in the direction that we can go. And I think we're at an interesting time in terms of relationship building, because 
it does start to feel like a real collaborative effort for the first time. And so I think it's always been in a way, you know, there's been, whether it's media or just the general population have like, you know, kind of pitted the men's and women's teams almost like against one another where that hasn't been the case, but I just don't think there has been as much collaboration as we could have had. And so now we're, this is public knowledge, so I'm not giving away anything, but there is a a general, like the CBAs, collective bargaining agreements are, are up for both teams. And there's a, there's a collaboration and and joining those CBAs. So there feels very much more of a relationship building that needs. And I think we're going to see success where my hope is that we'll see success in that in with in U.S. soccer and the men's and women's national team moving forward. I also want to say, too, I think, you know, unfortunately, this has been the case, but we have a lot more than just our women's men's and women's national team. We have the Paralympic team. We have mm-hmm. the um, which is essentially under the umbrella of the extended extended national teams, the Paralympic, the beach teams, the deaf teams. And mm-hmm. when you're talking about equal pay and equal opportunity, those teams are often lost in that discussion, which is a disservice to everybody. And so when I talk about the men's and women's teams, I'm also referencing that because that has been not in the, in the conversation at all. And I think it, it has to be quite frankly. So I I feel, I feel what's the word. I I feel like there's promise moving forward on, on all sides. That's great to hear. And, and I really appreciate your mention of those other teams. That's one of the most important things in sport is keeping it inclusive and keeping it um, a space where everyone can compete on fair terms. Yeah, because I, that hasn't been the case and that's um, it's imperative. So let's transition to exploring your professional world now. You've retired from pro soccer and now you're commentating. And how did how did that transition occur? <laughs> Not smoothly. Um, I think, it, no, I mean, I look back now and I kind of laugh, but I, I do think it is an interesting, you know, there's been so many conversations about this, what it's like for professional athletes and it can be smooth, but I also think that there is a, it is tough, right? Because you have these schedules, you're competing at the highest level and the, the 1% every day. And to remove yourself from that is challenging. I mean, it's, it's a big shift and pivot in life. And so I did experience that of kind of like, okay, what does this look like? But my experience was more, you know, we talked previously about, you know, looking at life and that filter of like, how can I, how, what can improve and get me better as a soccer player. And I, athleticism, improving my athleticism, lifting weights was a huge aspect of that. And that carried me on. I think that was one of the reasons why I had such a longevity in my career and stayed injury free is because of, you know, that kind of a sports performance side. And so I was really driven from that and learning more and more about like, you know, the health and aspect of, of my playing career. And so I thought that's what I was going to do afterwards is help the Mm -hmm. young athletes stay injury free and almost bought into a few gyms in DC after my playing career. And what I realized was I needed a little bit of a break from the game, but ultimately it wasn't to own a brick and mortar and to be in the gym every single day. And it's something I needed to realize after a couple of years of playing. So I, I quickly shifted, but I brought up Kate Margraf, who I unfortunately concussed and is now our general manager, but she was a commentating at the time and had been since her her playing days. And so she was always like, Lori, I think you should get into commentating. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, um, I'm doing the sports performance stuff. I'm going to own some gems and yada, yada, yada. And then I realized like, absolutely not. Er, I need to pivot. That's not what I want to do. And so I reached out to Kate. She put me in the people in touch with the people I needed to be in. And then I got a little bit of taste of commentating. And I was like, this is it. This is for me, the next best thing. 
that's not the case for a lot of people. I mean, it's much of a very craft that I think a lot of people think, like, oh, you just go in there and start talking. But I loved it. Got the taste of it. This is like something I want to continue to improve. And then the, kind of the rest has been history. Just been open to new opportunities ever since. And in terms of commentating and doing your analyst work, what's something that's like challenging versus something that's enjoyable? In terms of commentating? Yeah. And analyzing. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is that it's it's live, right? So you have it has like I can sit here and talk with you all day about soccer and you know, shoot the shit and enjoy it and just be like, okay, this is what I'm seeing if we're watching a game. But that doesn't translate into live TV, just kind of like, yes, you want that aspect of feeling like whoever you're listening to is welcoming and not talking down to you. And there's like an aspect of like, yeah, I want to be friends with this person. At least that's how I I view it. Right. But there also has to be energy. You have to be succinct and it's in live time. So you have to be able to think on your toes and pivot and be enjoyable to listen to. So there's a real presence that is involved. And so I, and which I don't think a lot of people realize. And also that, as I mentioned, in, in, energy is a huge because, you know, if I'm just talking a little bit like this, you know, I don't think I sound monotone necessarily, but also that's not going to come through a television. So there's manufactured energy, but not too much. So there's, it is a craft. It is an understanding. Absolutely. It's about watching tape, just like you would watch as a player. There's um, a collaboration aspect of who you're working with and that could change frequently or that could stay the same. So then how do you play off one another? Do they have a lot of energy? How do you combat that too? So it just really depends on who you're working with and all of that comes into play and you're analyzing the game in real time. How would you make the changes? Right. So, and you have people in your ear, producer and dresser, and you're using talkback. So I don't think anybody actually realizes all the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and you're at the stadium potentially, and you're seeing different angles. So it is, there's a lot and it's just about, there's a lot going on. Yeah. And embracing that and also realizing like, this isn't life or death. This is sport, but also it's fun and I and I take it seriously and enjoy it. I love it. Sounds it. like a lot of parallels to the actual live sport, you know, live performance in both cases, <laughs> totally. a lot of areas for growth, a lot. Uh, it could be viewed as chaotic, but there's actually, you know, you can get that flow state and focus. Uh -huh. uh, sounds, sounds like it was good training ground for you. Yeah. Oh, totally. <laughs> I mean, you have to feel like I have a PhD in soccer and I'm always still learning is that the game's involving, but then you have this little other aspect as well. So I love it. I also wanted to ask you a bit about your advocacy and and one thing I admire about you is your commitment to advocacy and personal growth. So what does it mean to you to be an ally to any group of people? Yeah. You know, I, my driving force is in life is, is collaboration and like being a, a, like a loving presence because I, I, I like one, how that makes me feel. And I, I like how that feels when I feel that from somebody else. Right. And I think you and I would agree, like when we're talking, we, we have that that synergy and energy between us. Absolutely. But that is that that is what drives me. I want people to feel included. I want people to have loving experiences. And that's my driving force because I know how important that has been to me. Mm -hmm. And I want people to have that same experience. It's really the best way to put it. I think that's beautifully said. <laughs> so where are you currently directing your efforts? And if, if there is someone who's someone that inspires and motivates you to get better in terms of being an, an advocate, whether that's, you know, gender, race, sexuality, any other uh, ability, any other uh, category. Mm -hmm. Well, a lot of my, my focus has been recently on trans inclusion. Um, mm -hmm. There's a lot of anti-trans bills being spread across the, the country in terms of 
allowing, whether it's health coverage or when we're specifically talking about sport, which is extremely important to me. There's a lot of bills being passed that are not allowing young trans people to, to compete in sport. And, you know, this, simply put, I... I know what sport has given me, right? During challenging times, when I talk about kind of that loving kind of collaboration, just being able to play with your friends, as simple as that. I was so grateful for sport. And I believe that everybody should have that experience. And so that's why I want to be in the mix. I, I, I want to be outspoken about that. I think as a, as a white cisgender woman, that is important to be an ally who's played at the highest level. Is important to, to to speak up about that, and um, I feel very strongly about it. You know, in terms of goodness, I mean, there's so many people that are doing amazing work that I'm always looking to to. In terms of direct contact, my partner Jen, I think, is an unbelievable like student in continuing to to learn and um, find ways that she can continue to be a, an excellent ally and in a lot of ways pushes me and I value that to continue to learn, understand more so that like when I am in a position to use my platform, it's, it's, I can provide the simplest aspects, right. From the most loving place that people can understand, right. Cause I think we can get very complex and understand and it is important to understand the bills and all that is happening. But when it can be so simple for people to understand there, here's the information and, and Jen pushes me to that every day. I love that. And what do you think is the importance of keeping sports spaces inclusive? You spoke to the, the getting the opportunities you did. Do you think of it in that context or are there aspects beyond that that also drive you? Yeah. I mean, the, really the simplest way is that sport is a way to express yourself and it's a way to, uh, you know, I think, listen, I, I understand how fortunate I was in, in everything that went into it. Right. And luck and some timing and yes, hard work. And there's a lot of hard workers. And I, and I got to the highest level, but the reality is that's not the case, right. For 99% of the people, so 99% of people are wanting to go around, have fun with their friends and enjoy the sport. And that should be available to everybody. And as simple as that, it should be that's available. Really they might take on it too, is all of the context around trans inclusion bills is around competition and sport is a holistic experience. That is my major issue with it. Um, yeah. You were describing your time in the room with Mia Hamm. You weren't talking about just being on the field with her, just being in, in a live game with her. So I really think it's important that we keep sports spaces inclusive, especially at the youngest levels. I mean, that's, yeah. and it's not a business, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. It's not a business. And as much as uh, our society is trying to make and use sport as a business, it's not. It's not. And it's a place for people to express themselves and enjoy their time. And, and if you like to compete because that feels good, great. You can do that when you're running around and playing. That doesn't mean you exclude people from that. And last question for you here, because I am curious what this answer, what's an empowering belief that you've come to embrace during your lifetime that you think has helped you? I have. Okay. Well, great question. And also nothing is in my control. So enjoy the ride. It's <laughs> a great answer. I mean, listen, it is not. And as much as like, we want to pretend like it is, I think the pandemic oh, no. is a great example. Listen, no one knew that was coming. So here we are. And surprise. Uh, yeah, exactly. Surprise. So nothing is in control as much, again, as much as we want to do set ourselves up and say like, I'm going to do this to control. Ultimately it's not. And it's taken a bit for me to understand that and really grasp that. But also when you embrace it, you're like, all right, here we go. Let's, let's enjoy the ride. 
life has a way of continuing to teach us the lessons we need to learn. So exactly. <laughs> you, you were continuing to invite that invitation to learn it. And then you're like, I got it. Thank, yeah. thank you. I've got it. Yeah, exactly. You know, and one other, going back to that question you asked previously about somebody too, that I, I mean, I think this is the question, but I answered with my partner, Jen, which is wholeheartedly, but I think, you know, my therapist, Louise too, is constantly mm-hmm. teaching me these little subtleties of nothing's in your control looking at like my childhood and how I've learned a lot of these things through society. And I am so grateful for that, like internal work and personal work, because um, I, I, I sometimes wish I had learned it during my playing days. It would have been interesting yes. to see how that would have, how my experience on the field could have been different, I should say. And now you're getting to apply in other areas of life and for the totally. rest of your yeah. existence here in form. <laughs> yeah, the, the analyst aspect, it feels like I get to do my playing days all over again. So I'm so grateful for that. That is. Mm-hmm. And something I'm grateful for was you taking the time today to do this <laughs> interview and share your wisdom and share your insights and share your memories. Uh, this was so much fun. So I need to know how can people get in touch with you or how could they learn more about you? Yeah, well, first, thank you. Love chatting with you. Thank you for having me on. And for the, the wonderful questions. So across the board at Lori Lindsay six, that's L-O-R-I-L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. And then the number six, um, that's Twitter, Instagram, not really on Facebook, but yeah, get in touch. I appreciate chatting and, and DMs and stuff. So, and, and getting to know people. So yeah, reach out. Well, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, let's connect on social media so I can share in your world too. You can find me everywhere using at Kate Hildreth or online at the website kadehildreth.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and review this podcast.